Before we turn to the word of God, his holy and errant infallible word, let us turn to the Lord, asking the Lord to bless the reading and hearing of his word. Let us pray together. Our Lord and our God, now as we hear your word, fill us with your spirit. Soften our hearts that we may delight in your presence. Sharpen our minds that we may discern your truth. Shape our wills that we may desire your ways. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Continuing our sermon series through the Acts of the Apostles, we are in chapter 6. This morning, verses 8 through 15, hear the word of the Lord. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, And of those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now to him who loves us, who's freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Last Sunday, we were introduced to Stephen, who was described as a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. We now find him getting himself into a bit of trouble with some Jews who belong to the synagogue of the freedmen. This name of this synagogue indicates that these were Jews who themselves had been slaves or who were children of slaves, but who had been granted their freedom. Probably the more important detail that Luke shares with us is that the members of this synagogue were from various areas in North Africa and what is modern day Turkey. So these were Hellenistic Jews. Jews, as we learned last Sunday, who had returned to Jerusalem from the diaspora. Now, it may or may not have struck you as curious that there would be a synagogue in Jerusalem where the temple was located. We understand that the temple was at the center of Jewish life and faith during that time, and we might wonder why there was a synagogue in Jerusalem. And the answer is that Even though the temple was at the heart of the Jewish faith and life, being the place where the Spirit of God was thought to reside and where the sacrificial rituals occurred, synagogues served as places where the law of God was taught. In other words, God's 
people gathered in synagogue to receive instruction in the scriptures together with the oral law coming from the rabbinic tradition. As one biblical commentator points out, an endeavor was made to educate the whole community in the faith, applying the words of God to every area of life, working out the implications of covenant obedience. And this was done not merely through Sabbath gatherings, but through the use of synagogues, more generally as places of elementary education and more advanced studies. So the synagogues were schools of faith, as it were, where those in the Jewish community were taught the essentials of the faith and were shaped with a Jewish worldview. And you can imagine that two important aspects of their worldview would have been the place of the law and the place of the temple in their faith. Now, we shouldn't assume that the Hellenistic Jews who had come from outside of Palestine might somehow be less committed to the Jewish traditions and faith. Even though it might be tempting to think that someone who had come from a different land, who had been fully immersed in a different culture, who spoke a different language, might be more tolerant and more open to new ideas, this was definitely not the case. Actually, the opposite was true. We should remember that the Hellenistic Jews were the ones who had left their homes in these foreign lands to return to Jerusalem because of their passion for Jerusalem and the Jewish faith. They wanted to be back home where the temple was. They weren't then less nationalistic, less Jewish than those who were called Hebrew Jews. At points, they were more devout and committed. So it should not be at all surprising that they were highly zealous for the law in the temple. And this is the point of friction that happens with Stephen. We discover here that Stephen was not merely, <clears throat> merely caring for the widows of the Christian community as he was appointed to do in the previous passage. Luke tells us that he was full of grace and power and was doing wonders and signs among the people. He was out and about ministering in the name of Jesus Christ. And Luke makes clear he was bold in his proclamation of the gospel and ministry to the Hellenistic Jews. <clears throat> but those in this particular synagogue weren't too keen on Stephen's preaching, which they took to be a critique of their religion. <clears throat> As we will discover at <clears throat> in particular at the point of the law in the temple. So these Jews engaged him in theological debate. As Luke says in verse 8, these Hellenistic Jews rose up and disputed with Stephen. But Luke tells us in verse 9 that those who disputed with Stephen could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. As simply put, they engaged him in debate and got utterly destroyed. They were no match for the persuasive power and logic they found themselves faced with in Stephen. And it wasn't just that Stephen was a gifted debater. What Luke intends for us to see is that he is speaking with inspired wisdom. The Hellenists found themselves outmatched because they had not reckoned the sort of man that they were faced with. One filled with the Spirit of God, and thus speaking with the wisdom of God. 
So facing Stephen in debate was going up against the spirit of the living God. And we need to understand this to be the fulfillment of Jesus's promise to provide words for his followers when such, in such a situation. Jesus told his disciples when he sent them out to proclaim the gospel, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. This is precisely what is happening through Stephen here. But having heard the wisdom of God, do the Hellenists submit to it? No. They are incensed by it. They have been thwarted in debate, and now they go about furiously trying to destroy Stephen. Luke says in verse 11, Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. To secretly instigate means to put someone else up to. It means that they hatched an awful scheme. They got people, possibly by some form of bribery, to begin spreading lies about Stephen. The great John Stott said it well when he commented, For when arguments fail, mud has often seemed an excellent substitute. And this is the basis for their wicked scheme. It was a smear campaign against Stephen. They spread false accusations with the intent to discredit him, to ruin his reputation, to stir up anger and resentment against him in the community. And Luke tells us that they hit their target. These rumors about Stephen, primarily that he was a blasphemer, were spread all over the community in a way that stirred up the general population in addition to the elders and scribes, which led to Stephen's arrest and trial before the Sanhedrin. Luke tells us in verse 13 that at this trial there had been false witnesses arranged who accused Stephen, saying this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, meaning the temple and the law. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And it's here that the picture of what enraged the Hellenists becomes clear for us. Even as they knowingly said false things about Stephen for the purpose of inciting violence against him, and even as Luke indicates now that these witnesses were deliberately distorting misrepresenting and exaggerating what Stephen had said, their charges did hold an element of truth. You see, they did believe him to be a blasphemer. This charge was referring to more than Stephen just somehow misusing God's name. Blasphemy here is seen in a broader sense of speaking and acting in a way of contempt an irreverence toward God and sacred things. And the Hellenists had taken Stephen's message about Jesus to be an attack on the sacredness and eternal significance of the law in the temple for God's people. So they viewed what Stephen was saying as a violation of the majesty of God. 
As we see, as we will see in Stephen's defense in chapter 7, though, even as he is very provocative, the charge that he was a blasphemer simply did not hold up. What he will reveal, however, was that his opponents themselves were mistaken about God's law in the temple. But what is at issue here is exactly what Jesus is charged with in Mark 14. When Jesus was brought before the council, Mark tells us that many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We have heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another one not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree, Mark tells us. Now, we know that Jesus was not speaking of the temple, but of his body. He was speaking of his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins and the salvation of sinners. The apostle John makes this clear in John 2. But even as Stephen faithfully preached the death and resurrection of Jesus as the Christ, which might have included what Jesus said about raising up the temple of his body in three days, what the Hellenist heard was that Jesus said that he would destroy the temple. And as Stephen perhaps laid out how Jesus had fulfilled the law in his ministry, what they had heard him saying was that Jesus would change the customs handed down by Moses. What they were worked about, worked up about then is the destruction of the temple and the alteration of the law. They totally missed what Jesus really taught and what Stephen was giving faithful witness to. As John Stott articulates, well, what Jesus taught was that the temple and the law would be superseded, meaning not that they had never been divine gifts in the first place, but that they would find their God-intended fulfillment in him, the Messiah. Jesus was and is the replacement of the temple and the fulfillment of the law. Moreover, to affirm that both temple and law pointed forward to him, Jesus, and are now fulfilled in him is to magnify their importance, not to denigrate it. But we need to understand here that Stephen's opponents and accusers weren't trying to hear him. They weren't trying to understand his arguments. They rejected his testimony because they had rejected Jesus. This is what Jesus warned his followers of. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you, are, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, then they will also persecute you. And this is what this passage is telling us happened in accordance with Jesus' word. Stephen was being treated just as Jesus was. So as one biblical scholar points out, that is what Stephen's trial was all about. The violent rejection of Stephen represented a rejection of Jesus, the Messiah. Ultimately, it was not Stephen 
but the Sanhedrin on trial that day. And we will see just how violent this rejection was in the weeks to come. But this morning, there is a lesson here in our passage about the response of the world to our lives and our witnesses for Jesus. There are really only a few ways that the world might respond to you when you live boldly according to the faith and are active in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our obvious hope is that our lives and our witnesses bring about the conversion of others. That the gospel is proclaimed, that God uses it to pierce the hearts of the unregenerate, and that by the power of the Holy Spirit, that they are brought to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. That as the grace of God is declared to them, they humbly recognize themselves to be sinners in the sight of God, incapable of doing anything that will produce in themselves a righteous standing before the Lord that they will cast themselves upon God's grace offered through the cross of Jesus Christ, that they will put their trust in him as their all-sufficient sacrifice. This is what we pray for. And we know that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And we also know that God's word will not return to him void, that it will accomplish his purposes in accordance with his perfect will that all those whom God calls will be brought to him through the proclamation of the gospel accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit. But that doesn't mean that all will respond to the gospel in faith. Some might hear it and simply cast it aside, be uninterested, uncaring, demonstrate hearts hardened to receiving it to their judgment. And when Jesus sends out his disciples to proclaim the gospel, to demonstrate the coming of the kingdom of God as recorded by the gospels, Jesus tells them that if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. A rejection of the gospel message presented by a follower of Jesus is a rejection of Jesus himself. But not all who reject the gospel will be so apathetic that they will fail to respond to it in some way. So Jesus further warned his disciples when he sent them out, beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. We know that the apostles have already experienced this to be true in part in the last couple chapters of Acts. The story of Stephen reveals that it's not only arrests and trials and beatings that can be expected, though. His story represents that violence against the followers of Jesus will lead even to death at times. But it wasn't that Stephen was doing anything wrong or that God had abandoned him. We need to understand this. Because sometimes when we come into conflict with the world around us, when people respond poorly to us, when we don't like, when they don't like us on account of our faith, we take it personally. We feel guilty as though we've done something wrong. It's significant that in verse 15 that Luke tells us 
that all who sat in the council saw his face was like the face of an angel. This is what happened to Moses when he came down from Mount Sinai with the law. So Stephen was here being accused of opposing the law as handed down by Moses, even as his countenance resembled Moses himself. And just as Moses' radiant face revealed that he had been in the presence of God and had received God's approval, so too did Stephen's face. And really, we have seen evidence of God's blessing on Stephen again and again in chapter 6. We have been told that he was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, a man full of grace and power, a man with unresistible wisdom, and now with a shining face like that of an angel. These are all tokens of God's Spirit in him and upon him. God was certainly with him and guiding him. So you might assume that others would be drawn to such a person. These are the descriptors of someone that we might identify who has charisma in the best sense of the word. And yet, and yet, the response to him is antagonistic. Simply put, the gospel will produce agitation. Jesus assures us that this will be the case. It will be found to be offensive because it confronts us in our deeply held beliefs about who we want God to be. It confronts us in our self-righteousness. It confronts us in our pride. It confronts us in our love for the things of this world in our pursuit to justify these loves. It confronts us in our sin. It is offensive to all who are determined to live in rebellion against God, who hate God and refuse to acknowledge that they are accountable to him for their lives. And what we have in this passage is an example of how the world might respond to you as one who is living according to the Christian faith. On the rather tame end, I might add, they might just despise you and speak falsely against you. They might conspire to smear your public image, to shame you, to drag your name through the mud. The reality is more and more in our context, we are able to relate to what Stephen experiences here. We recognize these tactics of Stephen's opponents because we see them all around us in the world today, name-calling, mudslinging, slander. The issue isn't our beliefs, on the temple or how Jesus fulfilled the law, though, it's issues like abortion, gender roles and gender identity, critical race theory, homosexual marriage. The list could go on and on. But what happens when you don't agree or submit to the world's accepted stance on these issues? You're shamed. You're called hateful, bigoted, homophobic, ignorant, misogynistic, unloving, racist. And the logic makes no sense. For instance, abortion reeks of an utter disregard for human life. But if you are against abortion, you somehow hate women. Or if you argue in favor of the obvious and undeniable biological reality that God made humans male and female, only male and female, You are somehow anti-science, trans or homophobic, 
again, it, it makes no sense, but when logic fails, mud is an excellent substitute. Is there a place for civil discourse on these issues with opposing parties expressing their views passionately and respectfully? Of course not. If you oppose that which the world supports, then you are pretty quickly labeled something awful and rejected as a deplorable. There is no civil discourse. There is no respectful debate in society because these things are sacred cows in our culture. They are the gods of this present age, and the world around us demands that we bow our knees to these things. This is particularly evident this month, if you haven't noticed. Just look at how companies claiming to be brave and just have all changed their logos to show reverence for the gods of our culture. And thus we too, just like Stephen, will be accused of blasphemy because Christians are increasingly being viewed as speaking and acting in ways that show contempt and lack of reverence for these gods. Granted, the world will not use this language of blasphemy, but make no mistake, this is what is happening. So how do we respond? Do we keep our heads down? keep our mouths closed, seek to live quiet lives. This is what seems to be instructed by the Apostle Paul to the church in Thessalonica when he writes, aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. But what Paul encourages there is that Christians make an honest living not meddle in things that do not concern us, seek to live at peace with others as far as it is possible. He isn't, though, discouraging standing for truth and boldly proclaiming the gospel. In a world where everyone is offended by everything but sin, the reality is that it is becoming increasingly difficult to live at peace with others because it requires us to live at peace with sin. And Christians are called to no such thing. Does this mean then that we should be completely uncaring about how the world views us? Well, Scripture does give us some instruction about how we are to live before a world twisted and corrupted by sin as well. God's Word instructs us, for instance, not to give anyone ammunition to say bad things against us. It instructs us to be well thought of in the community. These are both items listed in the biblical qualifications for being an elder that I read last week, right? Be above reproach. Be well thought of by outsiders. And Peter says it like this, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. However, this doesn't mean that we value the opinion of men above obedience to God. Therefore, seeking to be well thought of is never an excuse to avoid living with a bold witness. We don't avoid obeying God's call to go and be witnesses to Jesus Christ just because someone might be offended and malign us as bigots or haters or misogynists, etc. Rather, what Peter will say repeatedly is that we are to live honorably, that we should treat others with respect and gentleness in order that when we are slandered, 
those who revile your good behavior in Christ may themselves be put to shame. And so we need to be encouraged at this point. Scripture never instructs us to tiptoe around, trying not to offend anyone. But we want to be light. So we might be tempted to think, well, I don't want anyone to be offended by what Scripture says. It might keep them from coming to Christ. It might be a deterrent from them hearing the gospel. So I will just soft pedal the truths of Scripture. And we might say something like, well, Christians hold different views on this or that issue in good faith. Dearly beloved, no, they don't. Scripture is very clear on issues like abortion and sexual perversion and attempts to deconstruct the family. Christians don't hold differing views on these issues in good faith. We need to understand that God brings about salvation by confronting people in their sin. And so we mustn't shy away from sin then. Further, let me ask you, how's it working out for the church in the United States? Has not standing up for truth really helped people to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ? Has the church in America grown? Has it kept Christians from being maligned in this country? Even the ones who have caved to the cultural pressures. Scripture simply doesn't call us to be careful to live our lives in a way that aren't offensive. And this passage teaches us this lesson. It doesn't mean that we go around trying to pick a fight. It doesn't mean that we try to offend people. It certainly doesn't give us a license to say things that actually are hateful or racist or unloving by a biblical standard. Believe me, though, we don't have to try to offend anyone. Everyone these days is easily offended, and that includes us. We need thicker skin in this regard, understanding that it is God who the world rejects. But we need to accept that standing firmly in God's truth and living with a bold witness for Jesus will be met with resistance. Jesus tells us, though, that we are blessed, that we are blessed if people malign us for his sake. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus states, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Jesus saw the day coming when Stephen would be drugged before the Sanhedrin, the conflict between the followers of Jesus, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and the world, those who love darkness, is inevitable. And listen to what Jesus says about it. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Don't hide your light under a bushel. Live boldly and bravely for Jesus Christ. This is what Peter repeats. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. 
It seems like in the case of Stephen that those in whom grace and power reside, the opposition will be all the more fierce. This will be the case for us too. And in this sort of world where people have become so accepting of sin, if people around us are not responding in any way to our lives, if there is nothing controversial or offensive about us, then chances are we aren't living boldly for the gospel. So in this world that we now find ourselves, the mark of true faith and a a clear and bold witness might not be being well-liked. It might just be having our name drugged through the mud, being despised, suffering persecution. This passage then calls us to examine ourselves to see which we love more, Jesus or the world's opinion of us. We aren't called to be incognito with our faith for Jesus' sake for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of faithful witness, for the sake of standing up for truth, we should be willing to suffer shame and persecution. As it has been said, he is no fool who will give up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. God's word assures us that the reward is great for those who suffer for the sake of Jesus because Jesus is worth it. He's worth every lie uttered against us. He is worth every pain we bear. He is worth every ounce of suffering we endure for him. And this suffering will ensure that we belong to him as his children. To God be the glory. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, help us as we face the assaults of this world, the flaming arrows of the evil one, insult and injury for the sake of of Jesus Christ. I grant that we will stand firm in the hour of trial. For your glory, may we give a bold witness, a clear proclamation of the gospel. And we ask that you would use us to bring others to saving faith in Jesus Christ. For it's in his name and for his sake that we pray these things. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe.